It's a tale as old as time, a song as old as rhyme. Some say it begins when you wish upon a star, and then once upon a dream, and after all, a dream is a wish your heart makes. But it happens. Boy meets girl, and they are ushered into a whole new world. Discovering something I never knew I needed after one dance, I can't help falling in love. It makes you ask the question, can you feel the love tonight? Makes you want to go on and kiss the girl. Ah, so this is love. I spent way too much time trying to jam 11 different Disney love songs into that paragraph this week. Songs from a long time ago, songs from some more recent. But Disney knows that a good fairy tale needs a little bit of romance. You can't have a fairy tale without a little bit of love. You need that romance that just kind of pulls on the heartstrings, that gives you that tingly feeling, that gives you those butterflies, you know. That there's something built into the heart of man that knows that just the world can't be experienced the way it's meant to be without love. Because love is an open door. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Some of you are saying, stop already, you're making me sick. I'm, I, you know, I, I will, but I'm so excited that we get to continue our series on Ruth this morning and watch what happens when a real-life fairy tale comes true. It is a series on love and redemption, but i got to warn you that we have a problem. We have an issue, and the issue is that this word love is just inadequate. It's, it's too small. The, the biblical idea of love and, and what we use for the best word we've got, love, it's just too small, it's too tiny, it's insignificant, it's inadequate to fully describe what the Bible's talking about when it says love. <laughs> that the Greek and the Hebrew, they had several different words for love. We're reduced to one word, and you know how we toss it around and throw it around. You know, I love pizza, I love lemonade, I love sweet tea, I love the outdoors, I love a good hike. I love baseball. I love the New York Yankees. I love, I know some of you are groaning. I heard it. <laughs> I love my church. I love my kids. I love my wife. I love our God. See how we just kind of, the term is just bandied about and tossed about. We can use it in so many different ways. But if I say I love pizza just like I love my wife, I'm in big trouble, right? Because it depends on context. But it's the best word we've got, and so we use it. But we've all had the experience, haven't we, where you hear someone maybe with a different worldview, and they're describing love, and you're listening to them as they talk about what love is, and you just want to jump off your chair and scream, you have no idea what you're talking about. Because we use terms differently, and so we mean different things. Before we dive deeper into this fairy tale, I think we've got to define terms. We, we must look at what love truly means because when you have this idea of love, if, if you liken the love story in the book of Ruth to the love story that we see in a, in a Disney fairy tale, then you're only seeing a fraction of what's really there. See, this love story here, it's so much richer, so much fuller, so much deeper, so we have to define terms. You, you can read the brilliance of biblical literature, and you can read something like 1 Corinthians 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. 
And you say, that's beautiful, that's, that's brilliant, that's, that's lovely. And we, we can put it in some kind of fine, uh, fancy writing, and we can pin it to our refrigerator and say, oh, this is so beautiful, I've just got to hang that up. But we can still at the same time fail to grasp the depth of what it really means. Because our word love, it's too tiny, it's insignificant. It, it can't fully describe what the biblical authors have in mind. In the Hebrew, in, in Ruth, a, a word that's going to come up a few times is this, uh, this word, Hebrew word, hesed. And it's translated love or loving kindness or favor or loyalty. It's translated a bunch of different ways. We can't just quite put our finger on it. It's, it's deeper. The English language is not capable of, of defining this word exactly. And it, it means three things. It has three primary ideas, this biblical term love. First, it's a love that always pursues the beloved. It's a love that always pursues, that keeps on going, that keeps on chasing, and never stops. See, this is the biblical love. This is the story of Christianity, that God pursues us, and that he never stops pursuing us. Even when we're his enemies, he pursues us. Sometimes you may hear someone say, I found Jesus. The truth is, Jesus wasn't lost. We were. He pursued us. And he did it by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live a perfect life, a life we could never live, to die on the cross and rise again so that we could be found, that we could be redeemed. See, this is a love that always pursues, a love that never stops. More than that, this love always works for the best of the beloved. So it always works for the best. It will never coddle sin. It will rebuke when it needs to rebuke. It will encourage what it needs to encourage. It will equip where it needs to equip. It shares the gospel where it needs to share the gospel. It always works for the best of the one being loved. Not for your best, but for the best of the one you're loving. And lastly, it's a type of love that will pay any cost. It's self-sacrificial. Whatever needs to be paid, it will pay. It, will, it, it recognizes that this type of love, it requires time, it requires energy, it requires effort, it requires money, and it will pay any cost, regardless of whether the love is returned or not. It's a love that never stops. It just keeps on sacrificing, keeps on pursuing, keeps on working for the best, keeps on paying whatever cost needs to be paid. See, oftentimes... Our world thinks of love as a contract, that, that it must be reciprocal. That, hey, if, if you stop loving me, well, then, hey, I'm, I'm out. I don't have to love you anymore. That wh- however you love me, that's in kind how I will then love you. And if you quit, well, then I'm released from that because it hurts, and I don't want to deal with that, so I'm released and I'm gone. We, we view it sometimes, oftentimes, as a contract. The, the love in the Bible is not that kind of love at all. The, the love of God is not that kind of love at all. It's, it's a covenant love. It's driven, driven by the will, not by the emotion. And it says, I choose to love you, and nothing could ever make me stop loving you. See, this is the love of God, that nothing you can do could ever cause God to love you any more, and nothing you could do could ever cause, cause God to love you any less, because God is love. And he's a God who always pursues, always works for your best, a God who's willing to pay any cost for you. This is 
biblical love. And you see, it's so much richer, so much fuller, so much deeper. It's the type of love that our hearts all crave for, that we all want to be loved like this. We, we know that the love of the Disney fairy tales, we know that that love is a fantasy. We, we, we know that we're not all perfect people and that sometimes we don't deserve to be loved. We, we know that sometimes those butterflies fly away, that the tingly feeling tends to fade. But yet we, we want a love that perseveres. We, we want a love that is committed no matter what. And this is the love of God. It's also the love that we get to see in action in the book of Ruth. So now that we've got our terms defined, let's go ahead and jump back in to this love story, this fairy tale. Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 will be our text this morning. Ruth 2, verses 1 through 13. We'll pick up the story. Ruth and Naomi, they're in Bethlehem now. It's the beginning of the the barley harvest. And you remember when they arrive, Naomi, she's bitter. She says, I'm empty. I've got nothing. She's complaining to the other women there in Bethlehem. And Ruth is sticking by her. She's clinging to her. She's left everything. She says, no, my life is now committed to your life. I'm I'm with you, Naomi. And so at this story, at this point in the story, Naomi begins to take a backseat to the story. And now Ruth and a new character, a Prince Charming, they will take center stage. Let's go ahead. Let's get introduced. We'll begin reading in Ruth chapter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to Ruth, Go, my daughter. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Let's stop there for a moment. As as the narrator introduces Boaz to us here in verse 1, there is this anticipation. There's some hope building into this story because there's a man in the family, a a relative of Elimelech. And so any Israelite reading this, he's saying, maybe, just maybe, could he stand up? Could he fulfill the kinsman-redeemer laws? Would he be that type of man? It says he is a worthy man. Could he be the one who would protect and provide for Ruth? Could he be the one to rescue her? Is it too much of a fairy tale to hope that he could love her? See, did you feel the anticipation building during these dark days of the judges? Is it too much to ask? Is it too much to hope during these dark, evil days when everyone had forgotten about God and they did what was right in their own eyes? Is it too much to think that he could be this type of man? Could he? The anticipation is building. That after all of this famine and after all of this death and after this separation, that maybe, just maybe, there's some excitement around the corner. And this is getting good. And what's more, Boaz, he's called a worthy man, a valiant warrior, a man of excellence, a worthy man, a man of wealth. This descriptor phrase, Bibles translate it uh, different ways. It's a very difficult phrase to translate. But any way you look at it, Boaz is highly respected in Bethlehem. 
He's highly respected. He's a man of honor, integrity, influence. He's the type of man that when Boaz were to walk in a room, you just back up and say, oh, Boaz is here. When Boaz began to speak, you'd hush, Boaz is talking. Listen up, let's, let's hear what this man has to say. He's a man of quality. The same Hebrew phrase is actually going to be used of Ruth in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, where she's often, it's often translated a woman of excellence. And so as we're introduced to Boaz, now let's go ahead and inject ourselves back into the story. This is what the narrator does. He gives us an introduction. He kind of builds our anticipation as the, okay, what, just what will Boaz do? And then he injects us back into the story. The ladies are hungry. Ruth goes to Naomi respectfully. says, Naomi, would it be all right if I just went and tried to glean in the fields, try to get some food for us? And in Bible times, to glean in the fields, what would happen is the, the workers would be in the fields, and they, they'd be going around, and in their left hand, they would grab the stalk, and in their right hand would be a short sickle, and they would chop off the, the grain, and, and they would keep doing this until their hands were full. And then they would tie the bundles together, or they would just set it on the ground, and other workers would come back behind them and tie the bundles together. And they were very careful not to lose any of the stock, not to lose any of the grain. This was important, but you were allowed to glean. You were allowed to follow behind. If there was anything that just dropped, anything they missed, you were allowed to take that. But it's really just eking out a living because they were very careful to try to get it all. It's not like there was just all this grain just like kind of left out that they could just grab. No, there's not much. It's the equivalent of dumpster diving for any kind of leftovers that you could possibly get. One author said it would be trying to make a living by just going around and trying to pick up aluminum cans and then recycle those for, for a few pennies. I mean, this is what Ruth is doing. She's just, whatever food she can get, if she can provide for any way, if she can just put something in her stomach, and it seems, as, as she asked, that perhaps Naomi's emotions have relaxed a little bit. She responds tenderly to Ruth, and she says, Go, my daughter, this would be okay. Go ahead, try to see if you can get something. And so Ruth leaves, and she just so happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Literally, she chanced to chance upon the field. See, the narrator, he's dripping with irony here. See, what the world might describe as chance, what the world might describe as coincidence, what the world might describe as fate, the narrator, he's pulling you in as if to say, do you think that it was just chance that Ruth happened upon the field of Boaz? Do you think it was just chance that Boaz was the one good man during the dark days of the judges? Do you think it was just chance that Boaz just happened to be related to Elimelech? Do you think it was just chance? See, he's pulling you in and he's saying, no, no, no. Don't you see the sovereign hand at God at work behind the scenes in this story? See, see, what the world describes as coincidence, what the world describes as chance, those with eyes to see can see the hand of God at work in ways that the rest of us, the rest of the world would never notice. The providence of our God working for Ruth's good. And then this biblical love that Ruth has displayed to Naomi will now be displayed to her. But at this point in the story, Anyone looking is saying, ah, there's no evidence that God has been good to Ruth just yet. 
And that's part of the point for us. The point is to trust God's goodness even when you can't see what he's doing. Trust God's goodness even when you can't see what he's doing. When you're in the valley of life, when you've been taken to the graveyard, when you commit yourself to someone who doesn't return your love, continue to be obedient. Continue to love. Continue to be kind. Continue to work for their good. Continue to pay any price. See, this is what Ruth is doing. She's committed herself to someone who doesn't care for her. At least it didn't appear to in chapter one. She, Naomi comes back and says, I'm empty, as Ruth stands right there next to her. She says, I'm bitter, call me bitter. Ruth has left everything. See, sometimes we can ask the questions, why does God do this? If God loved me, why is my life turning out the way it's turning out? If God loved me, why would I be afflicted like this? Why would God's hand appear to be against me? And we can ask why, 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 and we may never get the answer. But we can have confidence that God is always working for our good. That right now we're just in the middle of the story. That one day, there, there will be a day when every tear is wiped away. When, when we are fully conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, made in his likeness just as we are intended to be, we can have great confidence, even when we can't see him working, that God is at work and that his goodness is to be trusted. See, from the world's perspective, Ruth, she has no reason to trust. But those with eyes to see trust that God is at work behind the scenes, even when we can't make sense out of it right now. But God is at work on Ruth's behalf, and we want to see it. So let's keep reading. Ruth chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. See, it just so happened that as Ruth was in the field gleaning, that Boaz just so happened to come home and meet her as she was there and see her there. See, what the world sees is happenstance. We see, we behold the hand of God at work. In the middle of a generation that lived life any way they wanted to, in the middle of a generation that, that just did what was right in their own eyes, had forgotten who God was and what they had done for Israel, in the middle of this dark, ugly, w- wicked culture, there's Boaz. And it's striking. He arrives home, he rides out into the fields, and he greets everyone in the name of the Lord. This is not your standard greeting, okay? I mean, the standard greeting is simply shalom. He doesn't greet that way. Boaz is telling his employees, hey, I hope that you sense God's presence today. I hope as you're working that that you sense that God is with you. I hope God blesses your work and blesses your lives today. This this, this is a culture not so different than our postmodern culture today. Everyone doing what they think is right for them and what is true for them and what is good for them. It's not so different then. And can you imagine going to your work and your boss just stopping by your desk and saying, I hope that you sense God's blessing on your work today. 
I hope that you sense his presence as you work today. See, this is incredible. Or better still, could you imagine going to work and being so led by the Holy Spirit, who is a spirit of boldness, and that you greet the people around you? That, hey, I I pray that the Lord blesses you today. It's so good to work with you. I, I pray that God blesses you as you work today. Can you imagine that? Does God love that he is so lavished on you? Does it just overflow from you onto others? Because you just can't keep it. It's just overflowing. See, don't allow culture to define your character. Don't allow the culture to define your character. Don't allow your friends, don't allow the people you go to school with, don't allow your coworkers, don't allow those in your neighborhood to define your character. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead you. He is a spirit of boldness, and he will lead you by the way you love others. Don't compromise your faith. Don't stay silent about your faith. Let it shine. Love. Don't hold it back. Live fully alive. Live right side up in an upside down world, in a culture that's marked by moral and spiritual indifference. Boaz and Ruth, they stand out as distinct because of their character, because of their integrity, because of their love. And sometimes we can see characters like this and we can come, come by and we want to bronze them. We, we want to put them up in some kind of trophy hall of faith and say, look at these people. Oh, you know, Brian's, ah, oh, you know, with the trophy thing. It, it, this is what we do sometimes. That these people are beyond us. They're special. They're incredible. The fact of the matter is these are just ordinary people. They just happen to serve an incredible, ordinary, an incredible, extraordinary God. It's just what uh, Kevin was talking about as he was sharing his testimony. That it's not me, it's God working through me. This is Ruth and Boaz. These are not incredible, special people. They're just people who serve an extraordinary, special God. See, the beauty of the book of Ruth is not that we're called to measure up to Ruth or Boaz. The beauty of the book of Ruth is that the same God who empowered Ruth and Boaz empowers people like you and me today to love people in a way that our world just doesn't get to see very often. Boaz leads in the way he loves. And it impacts his employees. You see, it; they they respond in kind. They say, may the Lord bless you too. I mean, this is unheard of in this day. These are dark, evil days. And here in these dark, evil days, there's a field, there's, there, there's a wealthy landowner who's treating his employees well. And then his employees are affected by it and they respond in kind. He's, he's leading in these dark, evil days. You know, of all the eligible bachelors in Bethlehem, you would have thought that Boaz would have been snatched up by now. I mean, you look at him, and, and, and a man who, with this kind of integrity, and this kind of character, and this kind of influence, and this kind of wealth, that for sure, any, any young Israelite woman would, would hope that she would take notice of her. I mean, Scripture paints Boaz as godly, honest, humble, hardworking, caring, wealthy, a man of great integrity. This is... Prince Charming, and he couldn't possibly take an interest in a young Moabite widow named Ruth. Could he? Keep reading Ruth 2, verses 8 through 13. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. 
Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered Ruth, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. I imagine that after Boaz heard about Ruth, heard the testimony of Ruth, that he was impressed. Perhaps one of the reasons that he's still single is that all the other Israelite women, they they wanted Boaz for his money, perhaps just like common of the day. They were just selfish. And he just could never meet that woman of integrity, this woman of excellence. All, All the other local girls, they were just typical of the day. But Ruth is different. She's, she's left everything to love this older widow who has nothing really to offer her. She's left her homeland. Her husband has died, and yet she's committed herself not to her own life, to her own pursuits, but to the care of this older woman. I don't know, maybe it's just the romantic in me, but I imagine that there may be a bit of a pause between verses 7 and 8. I almost imagine that Boaz is rehearsing after he hears the story of Ruth and what she's done and all she's left, that before he approaches her, that perhaps just maybe he just kind of goes through exactly what he's going to say to her. That he just kind of works this speech. Maybe there's a few butterflies, I don't know. But he goes and he approaches, and you see, he's thought of every conceivable reason for why Ruth doesn't need to leave his field. He says, hey, you're, you're free to glean in my field. Go with my young women. You can be right there with them. And hey, by the way, I've instructed all the young men, they're, they're, they're not going to fight you for any of the grain left over. They're not going to treat you improperly. I mean, this woman was a woman who was out without protection. She was alone. She was vulnerable. She didn't have any kind of legal protection as a foreigner. See, if if someone would have wronged her, if they would have acted improperly towards her, I mean, I don't even know if anyone would have noticed in those days. They would have just looked the other way. Who would care? But Boaz has told everyone, hey, I will look after this young woman. Don't get in her way. Let her get the grain. Do not lay a hand on her. And hey, if she needs a drink, just, you know, you go and you get her a water bottle from the ice chest over there. Okay. So a typical of the day, what, what, a, what a gleaner would have to do is they would have to leave the field and they would have to go all the way back into, into town to the town well and get their water there and then go all the way back to the field. And Boaz says, no, 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 you don't need to do that. You, you just stay right here at the field. 
My, my, my men, they, they, they have some water over there. You feel free to drink from the company water cooler. It'll be okay. You don't need to leave. And Ruth, she's flabbergasted. She falls on the ground, her face to the ground. This is an Old Testament curtsy right here. Okay, she's just blown away that this wealthy landowner would take notice of her, a foreigner, that she would find favor. There's that word, that love word. It's, it's favor here. It's, it's, it's so hard to translate. It's so difficult to put our finger on it because the English language just can't quite describe it fully. Our words are not enough to do this term justice. But Boaz has demonstrated this love to Ruth this favor to Ruth, this kindness to Ruth. It's, it's a kindness, it's a love, it's a favor that Ruth has demonstrated to Naomi. It's not normal. And that's the point. Love like God loves. Love like God loves. The, the world doesn't have a box for this type of love. Even the word love just fails to capture the essence of what is being expressed here in this story. Someone who will pursue and keep on pursuing no matter what. Someone who will work for the best of that person no matter what. Someone who will pay any cost, regardless of whether they're loved and returned or not. Someone who, whose love, whose commitment, whose, whose caring, whose kindness is motivated just by the sheer will, by sheer choice, not by emotion. It's part of it, but it's driven by the will. And this is the love of God it's the love that Boaz is now demonstrating Ruth, that Ruth has demonstrated to Naomi. And Ruth doesn't have a box for it even. Why, why would you do this to me, a foreigner? I, I'm an immigrant here in your land. How could you love me like this? Why would you treat me so kindly? Boaz has said, hey, I've heard all about you. I know what you've been through. I know how you've lost your husband. I know how you've committed yourself to Naomi. And more than that, I know how you've committed yourself to the God of Israel. See, there's something special inside of you, Ruth, something special that's worth honoring. And Boaz talked about God. This is his first conversation, the first conversation he ever has with Ruth. You see him as he comes in, he greets his employees, and now he's talking to Ruth. They just met, and he's talking to Ruth about God. During the dark days of the judges, I, I can't understate just how evil these days were. And here's Boaz, he's talking to Ruth about God, and he's telling her of God's goodness and of God's protection. And he's saying, I, I know that you feel like you've left everything, and you have, but you've committed yourself to the one true God, the God of Israel. You can take rest under his wings. He, he will look after you. He will protect you. He loves you. He's trustworthy. He will work things together for your good. For some of you this morning, you may need that reassurance too. You, you just need, may need to be reminded this morning that God loves you. Maybe you've thought about God, a good, perfect God. How could he possibly love me? When he knows all the evil things I've ever said, all the evil things I've ever done, how I've wronged people, how I've hurt people, how could he know that and still love me? Because his love is not dependent upon you. It's just who he is. And he chooses to love. He chooses to love you and me. And because of that, he pursues us. And he always is working for our best. He will pay any price to rescue us 
to redeem us. His love is greater than any kind of Disney fairy tale. Because he is love. You listen to Boaz as to why he explains his love to Ruth. And it has nothing to do with Ruth's Ruth's looks. In fact, you go through the whole story of Ruth and her physical appearance is never mentioned not one time. It's her character. It's her integrity. It's who she is, and he can't get over that. She's, She's comforted by his response. You've spoken so kindly to me. As he's led her to consider the faithfulness of God. See, it's a tale as old as time, a song as old as rhyme, that a beautiful, a wonderful, a holy God created humanity, a good humanity. But because of our sinfulness, we became beastly. But this beautiful God, he continued to pursue the beast, always working for the best of the beast, paying any cost, including his own son, to redeem the beast so that we could be redeemed to the people he has called us to be, that we could know the love of God and show the love of God to others. This is love. Heavenly Father, you are love. And it's a word that just seems inadequate in our language to describe you. But God, we we thank you that that even if we can't quite put it into words and do justice to it, we thank you that you have pursued us, that you've always worked for our best, that you've paid every cost, including your only son, so that we could be the people you would have us to be. And God, as we look out at a world in need and, and, and a world of broken and hurting people, God, help us to love like you love. Help us not to allow culture to define our character, but help us to be led by the power of your spirit and to live the life you would have us to live. God, we recognize that we can't do it on our own. And so we ask for your help by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.